All right, everybody, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn in them with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Today, we continue in this first section of this letter, which really is primarily about unity within the body of Christ, unity within the church. And, and we're going to continue today by looking at a few very challenging verses Buckle up, my friends, because Paul's coming for us today. All right, let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Friends, have you ever seen a little baby spit up? It's not the most pleasant thing in the world. Now, I love babies as much as the next guy, but I have to be honest, when I had babies, I always had a hard time with their spit up. There, there was one time when I was holding one of my little girls, and I was holding them over my head and, and playing with them and, and making sounds that only a young father could possibly make, and, and suddenly she spat up, and her vomit went directly into my mouth. Now, it, was, it wasn't like it splattered on my shirt. It went, you, you know those fountains at the park where they shoot a stream from one pool to the next? It was that. I suddenly had a mouthful of vomit. It was horrific. Now, all, all vomit is bad. But listen, we had one baby that had what is called pyloric stenosis. When a baby has pyloric stenosis, apparently the, the muscles in the pylorus, I don't even know what that really is, but the muscles become enlarged and they restrict the pyloric channel. I also don't really know what that is, but it, when it happens, it happens to the point where food is prevented from emptying out of the stomach into the digestive system. And do you know what the result is? Yeah, projectile vomiting. And I definitely learned what that is. One of our sons had pyloric stenosis, and it was quite remarkable because he would be fed a bottle, and he would seem fine for a few moments, but then in just a few short minutes, his little body would become like a volcano, and literally every ounce of that bottle would come spewing out all over us, all over the wall, literally feet into the air. It was quite impressive, actually. But pyloric stenosis is very serious. Apart from modern medicine, my little son would have died from it. He, he was taking in the milk, but there was something in his body which was restricting and, and strangling his stomach and making it impossible for him to be nourished and to grow. The restriction on his stomach stole nourishment from the rest of the body. And eventually his little six-week-old body grew sluggish from dehydration and from malnourishment. We had to rush him to the emergency room. They had to do emergency surgery on him in order to fix the problem. And he was there for over a week's time. 
The doctor had to fix the restriction. They actually had to cut the muscle that was restricting his stomach so that he could properly digest and begin to grow. But as long as that muscle strangled the pyloric channel, he would not have grown and he would have died. Church, Paul is warning us today that there is a dangerous strangulation happening in our lives as well. That there is often within the body of Christ something that is keeping us from receiving the nourishment that the Word of God is supposed to provide for us and that we are supposed to grow from. What is this dangerous restriction? It is disunity within the church. Paul says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul says that he has great good for them according to God's wisdom and according to his word, but they are missing out on it. They are unable to digest it and to be nourished by it because jealousy and strife and divisions within the church strangling their souls and keeping them from God's intended growth. And Paul wants them to grow. Church, Paul wants us to grow. He wants us to go on to maturity together. So he challenges the Corinthians. He challenges us today. Paul wants us to be truly spiritual people. And so he helps us to diagnose a significant problem in our lives. I love verse 4 and how Paul simply says, in the midst of their divisions, are you not being merely human?" In their divisions, in all of their conflicts, the Corinthians are being merely human. They are forgetting the the spiritual miracle that has happened in their lives through the gospel and the good that it is supposed to bring about in their lives. And Paul wants to remind them. He wants to remind us of how fundamental unity is to experiencing spiritual maturity together as God's people. The main idea for our message this morning is simply this. Spiritual maturity is marked by unity with God's people. Spiritual maturity is marked by unity with God's people. And we have two points this morning. Point number one, being merely human. And point number two, being superhuman. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, being merely human. Look again at verse one. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So Paul is saying, when I was first with you a few years ago, I had to treat you like baby Christians. Why? Well, because you were baby Christians. You were just discovering the gospel, and so I couldn't feed you with deep spiritual and theological truths. And that's okay, Paul says. Paul's not saying that the Corinthian Christians should have immediately been fully mature in Christ. Friends, Paul does not assume that that as soon as you become a Christian, that you become a, a robust theologian who knows God's word perfectly in every way. No, he's aware that it's a process. Paul knows that maturity takes time. But the issue of this text is found in what he says next at the end of verse 2. Look at it. He says, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And so the issue is not that 
that it takes time to grow in Christ. Growth in godliness is a process for all of us. But the concern for Paul is that these Corinthian Christians are still, even years later, marked by the same signs of infancy. They're still in their diapers. They should at least be potty trained by now as Christians. But no, they're still rolling around in their infancy and thinking that everything's okay. Now friends, this is a hard challenge from Paul. And it's particularly hard because the Corinthians prided themselves on being particularly mature Christians. They thought that they were super Christians. And so how challenging must it have been for Paul to say to them, no, you are infants in Christ. To talk about them as an infant drinking milk like a newborn baby. And so how did Paul see that immaturity? How does Paul know that they are still infants in Christ? They didn't see it in themselves. What are the signs of spiritual immaturity that he's concerned about? Well, in the same way that that we looked at our son and could see that he was becoming lethargic because of dehydration and that he needed to go to the hospital. So Paul is looking at the Corinthians and he is seeing their divisions. He is seeing their quarreling. He is seeing their focus on secondary things which divide rather than on primary things which unite. And he's saying, oh no, oh no, something's wrong here. They're not maturing as they should. The growth marks aren't where they should be. There's signs of malnourishment in their body. Something's wrong and something needs to happen here. Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So their, their disunity, their arguments with each other, their, their dissension from each other, their quarreling, It's all a sign of a much bigger problem. They're being merely human. That's that's revealed in a particular way in this text by Paul using the word flesh multiple times. That word flesh, which in Greek is sarkanoi, that speaks of them being distinctively unspiritual. Now, it's not that they, they don't have the Holy Spirit. It's not that they're not Christians. Paul calls them brothers even in this text. But they are not living spiritual lives as they should. They are living according to the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of the flesh. Listen, division within the body of Christ is a sign of a church that has forgotten their identity in Christ. Division within the body of Christ is a clear sign of a church that has forgotten who they are in Christ. Do you know what this is like? It's, it's like a superhero. We all love superheroes. It's like a superhero forgetting that they have superpowers. A superhero should use their powers for good. But when they forget who they are, kind of like Fat Thor in the Endgame movies, they forget who they are. They forget the power that they have. They become so consumed with earthly thoughts and with defeat and with contention that they live without their superpowers. They act as if they're merely human. Friends, as Christians, 
We have all kinds of superpowers available to us through the gospel. We have God-given abilities to live with, with superhuman unity together. Superhuman patience for one another. Superhuman love and forbearance and forgiveness together. These are all God-given superpowers for the sake of our unity. But oftentimes, like the Corinthians, oftentimes like Fat Thor, we forget who we truly are. We live as if we are merely human and as if we do not have the Holy Spirit within us. We live according to earthly wisdom. And church, this should be so plain for us to see together because it is very clear throughout all of God's word that earthly wisdom, the, the wisdom of Satan, the wisdom of our flesh divides while the wisdom of heaven, the wisdom of God unites. Let, let's do a brief study of division within God's word. Think about how history began. History began with incredible unity when God created this universe he did so out of the goodness of himself out of the unity of the Godhead Father Son and Holy Spirit united together their, their unity was was beautiful to behold and it was out of that unity that they decided to create a world that reflected that unity in greater ways they chose to create a people who they could share their unity with. And it was beautiful. The Garden of Eden was beautiful. God was united to humanity. Humanity was united to God. And humanity was united to each other. But then Genesis chapter 3 happened, right? Sin entered into the picture. Adam and Eve chose their own way apart from God. They chose disunity rather than unity. And the effect upon their lives and the effect upon this world was disastrous. Do you know what Genesis chapter 3 is like? It's like when you accidentally cut the end of a rope and, and the rest of the rope begins to unravel and fray. God united us together, but when we sin against Him, our unity with Him is cut off and all other experiences of unity in life begin to fray as well. The, the Garden of Eden meant perfect unity with God and with each other. Listen, that's what true spirituality was all about. That's what maturity was. To be truly spiritual, according to Genesis 1 and 2, is to be united to God and united to each other. But the fall into sin brought disunity between us and God and us and each other. And we started living out of our flesh and the results were disastrous. And it just gets worse and worse. They immediately experienced division between them and God. God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden and said, you may not return. They immediately experienced division between themselves. Their marriage was no longer perfect. Their sons immediately experienced division as Cain and Abel quarreled and Cain kills Abel. And the division just gets worse and worse throughout those first chapters. In fact, the whole first section of Genesis, which is really just an introduction to the rest of God's word, it all culminates in Genesis chapter 11, with the Tower of Babel, when humanity again pursues worldly wisdom and tries to build a house up to God, and then as a judgment, God divides them by making them speak different languages. The Tower of Babel is like the ultimate picture of disunity in God's word. And then we see that disunity on display throughout the rest of Genesis. And then in the book of Exodus, when the people of God grumble and complain against God and against Moses and against each other. We see that disunity 
that, that unspiritual fleshly division on display in the book of Judges? Right in the book of Judges when Israel did not have a king and it says repeatedly, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's like the ultimate statement of disunity. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And then in Judges 19 and 20, maybe the darkest point of the book, maybe the darkest point of our Bibles other than the cross, we see the tribes of Israel actually turning inward and attacking each other. When we live according to our own flesh, when we live according to worldly wisdom, we ultimately end up killing each other off. Finally, God gives them a king to hopefully unite them around. A king will maybe unite God's people together and it looks good for a little while, but inevitably their sin leads to division. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are divided. God's chosen nation is no longer one but two, no longer one king but two. If you read in the Old Testament prophets, you see God plea again and again for the people of God to be truly spiritual, to be united rather than being scattered as a result of their sin. Church, do you see what this is? Being spiritual is to be united as God designed, but being of the flesh, being of this world, following the schemes of the devil and of our own hearts means that we are divided. We see it even in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 Whoever says that he's in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 10, just listen to these words. Now the works of the flesh, same word as in our text today, the works of the flesh are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Those are all words of disunity. And Paul says they all come directly from the flesh. And consider James chapter 3. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, he says, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you see what Scripture is emphatically saying? Disunity is not a mark of spiritual wisdom. It's not a mark of greater discernment on your part. No, to be divided with any other brother or sister in Christ is to be distinctively unspiritual in Paul's perspective. It is to be merely human. Gordon Fee says... That being spiritual and divided are mutually exclusive. Being spiritual and divided are, are mutually exclusive. They can't happen in our lives at the same time. And so Christian, let me ask you a question. Are you divided? Are you divided with anyone who is a Christian? Have you allowed your pride or your preferences or your prejudices to lead you towards disunity with God's people? Who, who is that brother or sister in Christ that you try to avoid now because you never extended forgiveness to them for that thing that they did against you? Who is that Christian family member who goes to a different church and who has different opinions than you do and that you have not expressed loving support towards in a really long time? Who is that person in your fellowship group that you have decided in your own thinking is just 
too different from you, too difficult for you to talk to, and that by now they know that you really don't like them and that you're trying to avoid them? Who's the person in the church that you have allowed secondary issues to become a fault line between you and them? You've said in your mind, You've said this in your mind. If they're going to think that way about that issue, well, then I don't think that I can have fellowship with them. Who are these people for you? Friends, do you know what Paul says to us in each of those situations? He he does not say, wow, how godly of you. How mature of you to have such discernment and wisdom on these secondary issues. My goodness, I wish that I was more like you. That's not what Paul's saying. He looks at us and he says, no, what a waste of power. They have all of God's grace upon their lives, but they're still living as mere humans. They have the opportunity to be superhuman in my grace, in God's grace, but here they are wallowing in their earthly wisdom and in their self-promoting discernment. What an indictment. Redeemer Fellowship, we emphatically do not want to be merely human, amen? Amen. God has called us to so much more than that. If you are a Christian, God has done something in your life so big, so glorious, that it enables you to live in a superhuman way. And it is God's desire that we would live in that power together. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, being superhuman. Now, Paul does not detail exactly what being superhuman fully means in these four verses. He's going to start talking about that a little bit more next week. And he already has already to some degree. But we must notice some of what he's saying here today. The the implication of what he's saying in verses 1 to 4 is that there is a way to live that is not merely human. And the context of these verses, what comes before and what follows, shows us that this way is to live according to the wisdom of the cross. The Corinthians are divided. They're divided by philosophy and and by eloquence and by pride. They're divided over what leader to follow and, and who to listen to. But Paul says, no. To follow any of those things is to forfeit God's supernatural plan for your life. He has power for you, and that power does not come from focusing on secondary things. That power comes from focusing on the cross, on Jesus and Him crucified. Jesus, the very Son of God, came not according to worldly wisdom, but according to heavenly wisdom. Jesus came not according to the schemes of of the devil who always seeks to grab for power and for control, but Jesus came according to his Father's wisdom and he freely released power and control in order to love those around him. Jesus emptied himself and became a servant obedient to death. Jesus the most spiritual person to ever walk on this planet. He acted in a way that it was directly contrary to the wisdom of this world and of the devil. And church, that is where we get our power from. Jesus is the foundation that we build our lives and our unity upon. 
He's the foundation and the, the blueprint for our lives and for our church family. That's what we see down in verse 11 and, and beyond. The, the foundation is Jesus. And when we build on that foundation, superhuman unity together is a possibility. In Redeemer Fellowship, this is a really big deal. This isn't a small category. The idea of unity is not just a, a, a throwaway thought that, hey, if you have time, consider this together. No, a primary mark of Christian maturity is found in being united to God's people. That's what we see throughout Scripture. That's what we see specifically in the life of Christ as well. See, the Old Testament, as we just saw a few moments ago, the Old Testament has more than enough evidence to show that the wisdom of this world will always divide. The Old Testament has more than enough evidence to convince any logical person that, that earthly wisdom brings division and divisiveness. In the Old Testament, it is enough to make us long for something different, to make us long for unity. Right? Psalm 133 says with a longing heart, how beautiful when brothers dwell in unity together. We long for the unity that only God can bring about, but that was lost because of our sin. And so, church, what gloriously good news this morning to know that God has brought this unity about through Christ. Wisdom walked among us. Jesus entered into this world. Love walked beside us. Jesus came into this world and he began to dispel the darkness that divides. Jesus was all about his people being united. You know, I love to think about who Jesus united together around himself when he was here on earth. The disciples, Jesus' closest followers, man, they were an eclectic group. Among Jesus' disciples, there were economic differences. There were personality differences. There were ethnic differences. There were blue-collar people and white-collar people. There were conservatives and more liberals. Among Jesus' closest followers, there were political zealots and there were tax collectors. There were fishermen and there were women who would have been divided from the men in that culture. But not with Jesus. He says, you all are welcome here. Jesus loved to unite different people together. Why? Because to be united despite our differences is a primary way that we reflect who God is in himself and in the power of the gospel. And we can see that in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prays and he speaks of his unity with his Father. He shares that he had shared unity with his father from all of eternity past. From before the world even existed, they were one. But then he also prays for us. He also prays for his disciples everywhere and at all times. And he prays that we too would be one with him and with his father. He says this in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. The clear implication is that spiritual maturity, Christ-likeness, godliness, superhuman living, according to Jesus, means unity with him and with each other. And listen, Jesus said all of that while knowing full well that unity is hard. The 12 disciples proved it over and over. Peter and James and John 
we're regularly forgetting Jesus and falling into all kinds of division and argument with each other. And just like them, apart from Jesus, church, we too will be divided. We'll be like an old piece of wood that crumbles apart and has no value. Jesus knows that unity is impossible on our own. And so what does he do? Well, he offers us salvation through the cross, which contradicts every worldly value in our minds. He offers us salvation in a way that destroys worldly categories of division, right? Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 2 how it says that through the gospel, because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, and because we were all equally recipients of his unmerited grace and favor, because we were all now workmanships of, in Christ Jesus, all walls of hostility, all walls of division and distinction are broken down and we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. The gospel, the bloody cross humbles us and then it unites us together. And not only that, but, but Jesus also promises his Holy Spirit to us. And his Holy Spirit is the great unifier of his people. In Acts Chapters 1 and 2, after Jesus has returned to heaven and his, his disciples are waiting for instructions on what to do next, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to them and it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And do you know what happens next on that day of Pentecost? People from other languages, people from other nations begin to hear them and understand them and they come together in that place. Acts chapter 2 says that the Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. What's happening on the day of Pentecost? The disunity from the Tower of Babel is being reversed. It's being turned back. Unity is being restored. The mark of being a spirit-filled people is to be united with God's people. That's exactly what we see throughout the New Testament. That's exactly what we see in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, after clearly, beautifully articulating the gospel, he says this, I therefore urge you, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, he says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says that the way to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, the way to walk in a manner that rightly reflects the gospel is to be united together. And look at some of the words that he uses there. Humility, gentleness, Patience, bearing with one another in love. Those are words that speak of how hard unity is going to be. You don't need to bear with someone who is easy to get along with. You don't need to be patient with someone who you like. But rather someone that you don't like. Someone that's different from you. But that's what you're called to. Why? Because that is what it is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. 
and worthy of the gospel through which we've been saved. To be united together is a, is a right reflection of the supernatural work of the gospel in our lives. It's exactly the fruit that we are supposed to see together as a church family. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is going to say that by not allowing any factions, by not allowing any divisions among us, we will show the genuineness of our faith. He says, if you are genuinely a Christian, you will be united to God's people. It's everywhere in the New Testament. We are called to be superhuman. We are called to be filled by His Spirit and to be united to each other because of the cross. Now, friends, this is great to talk about. It sounds really good. But what does it mean for us? What does it look like to be united as God's people? We're all different people. We all have different levels of convictions about very different things. We all have different personalities. We all come from different family cultures. Does being truly spiritual mean that we look and think exactly the same? How, how can we be united while maintaining our God-given differences? Well, friends, this happens by prioritizing the cross. By remembering that it was not any secondary issue that drew God towards himself. It wasn't any secondary issue that drew us towards God. It was only His grace and mercy. It was not your level of wisdom. It was not your level of discernment. It was not your family culture. It was not your color skin or your political affiliation. It was only His grace through the cross. And when we remember that, we're able, we're enabled to, to not ignore all the differences, but to forbear with many of them. And the grace of God and the Spirit of God enables us to pursue this superhuman unity together. Friends, can I suggest that practicing this superhuman strength and unity might not look like what you think it looks like? When we think of superpowers, we often think of doing big and courageous and loud and bold things. Right? If God's given us superpowers, well then let's put on our Superman cape and walk in that power. And we often assume that that means that we often attack those that we disagree with, even within the church. We must defend our understanding of the truth. We must talk about how other people are wrong. So that, for example, when you're in fellowship group and someone is saying something that you disagree with, whatever it may be, many of us feel like we need to run into the other room, put our Superman cape on, come back in and stand for truth against what was just said said, have no fear, truth teller is here. I'm here to save the day. Let me stand for truth. But friends, more times than not, I do not think that that is what being a Christian with superpower looks like. No, in fact, it might be the exact opposite of that. It might be that when you hear that person sharing things that you strongly disagree with, when they bring up that theological difference or that political issue that you have strong opinions about, or when your friends want to talk again about how the other people have hurt you or wronged you, do you know what superhuman power from God might look like in that moment? It might look like running out of the room, putting your Superman cape on, and then coming in, sitting down, and shutting up. Your God-given superpower might be to not open your mouth. Think of that. You put on the cape of God's grace and the, the cape of God's forbearance. You put on the clothes of patience and humility and love and you are empowered by His Spirit to forbear with those who are different from you. 
You are empowered to not step into that gossip and slander again. You put on the cape of God's grace and you become supernaturally able, as James says, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, does that mean that we never say anything at all? Should we never address differences or issues between us? Does being united mean that we never stand for what we believe is true? No. The priority of unity does not mean that we never say anything. James doesn't say be quick to hear and never speak. He says be quick to hear and slow to speak. He means that unity happens when we are careful with our words. This means that we can use our words to speak against error particularly when someone is living in outright sin or is directly contradicting the gospel. Unity is possible when we use our words to speak in a very loving, humble, and intentional way. Again, friends, it's okay to disagree. But how we disagree as the church matters. There are going to be people in our church family who think very differently from you on a lot of issues. We are a diverse group, praise God. We are going to have people from every type of background in life here in this church by our side. And so what does it look like to be united but also to stand for a truth that you believe is important? Let's consider seven biblical communication principles that help us to be united while still disagreeing. Very quickly as we close. Number one, listen. Be quick to hear. Church, our world is terrible at listening. We start responding with our defense before the other side has even stated their case. Don't do that. Don't go there. May we be Christians who are known to be good listeners. Christian, be suspicious of yourself. When you feel like you've listened enough, you probably need to listen more. Number two, seek to understand. And this is directly a fruit of listening well. Proverbs says that the thoughts of a man are like deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. Don't don't just listen and assume that you understand what they're saying. Sometimes the words that they're saying don't have the same definitions as the words that you're hearing. Listen and ask questions. Ask questions like, why do you believe that that's true? What makes you feel that way? Listen, I don't think or feel the same way about that. Why do you think that that is? How did you come to that place? Seek to understand. Draw out. Listen, so many divisions within the church come not from being from having irreconcilable differences, but us from, from us simply failing to understand the point that the other person is trying to make. Seek to understand. Number three, express appreciation. James chapter three, it's impossible to bless God and curse man at the same time who is made in the image of God. And so let us honor the image of God in each other even as we disagree with each other. 
That person that you are disagreeing with is made in the very image of God. Their mind was created by God. And if they are a Christian, they have the spirit of God within them. And so you can thank them for sharing their perspective. And you don't need to just thank them. Look intently for areas in their perspective that you can appreciate and and agree with throughout the conversation. Express appreciation. Number four, pray. Probably should have started there. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Acknowledge your need for God's grace to talk to that person with love and respect and with humility. Number five, share your concerns. Share your concerns with love and respect. If after listening and and listening some more, if after expressing your appreciation and praying for wisdom, you feel like you still need to say something, do so, but do so with love and respect. Hebrews chapter 3 says that we need to exhort one another every day. A reproof from a brother is greater than many other expressions of love. We need to speak into each other's lives, but we also need to do so knowing that we are not the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so after you've shared your concern, maintain fellowship with them. Number six, forbear with them. Be patient with them. Don't allow your ongoing differences to change the way that you view that person, even in private. See them as a child of God and as a brother or sister in Christ and maintain, actively, intentionally maintain fellowship with them. And finally, number seven, trust God. God is the one who sanctifies. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We do not need to sanctify each other. We can be instruments in God's hands, but we can also trust God that he is going to be at work in each other's lives, and we don't need to force that change. Trust God and follow him in humility. Friends, pyloric stenosis is a dangerous business. The inability to grow, the inability to mature because of something strangling our stomachs is dangerous. Church, division in our midst is equally as dangerous. And so, may God use 1 Corinthians to do an examination of our lives and cause us to reflect on where there may be divisions among us. Might I suggest that if you are feeling like you are not growing in Christ that you are wanting more of him but, but seem to be hitting a wall spiritually, may it be, I think Paul would suggest, that you examine your life to consider where there might be unresolved division with brothers and sisters in Christ and then go after those things and seek to walk in them with humility.